0: Thank you. Uh, It's a great joy to worship the Lord with such reverence and beauty with you this night. Uh, Before we come to our sermon, and I shall be preaching on chapters 9 and 10, uh, I'd like you to bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word and we praise you that by your Spirit, we can not only understand this word intellectually, but that this word can change our hearts and draw us nigh unto you by your Son. And we ask that you would affect this in us now, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I say, our text is going to be 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. And my subject for this evening is getting the king we want. Human beings are created to be ruled. It's in our nature. As children, we are ruled by parents and teachers. Uh, If you look at the fifth commandment, it, it assumes that there is a hierarchy in human society. As workers, we are led by our bosses. As citizens, we are ruled by governments and lawmakers to some degree or another. And of course, as Christians, we are under the uh, care and authority of our ministers. But ultimately, we're created to be ruled by God. And all legitimate human Expressions of rule are rule under God's rule. All human kingships and lordships acknowledge the ultimate kingship and lordship of Almighty God. And we are created to acknowledge God's rule and to assent to his rule over all things and over us. We are created to respond to that rule with obedience to God's commandments and to submit to Him as Lord of our lives. God's rule is a fact. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God is the ruler of the universe. And yet, there's a tendency in fallen human hearts to prefer to be ruled by unworthy men and women measured by the standards of the world. And this was certainly the problem with Israel at the time of Samuel. And it can be a tendency in our society, certainly, and sometimes can even be a tendency in the Christian church. And so we'll be exploring that tonight. Now, Israel at this point in Israel's history, does not have a monarchy. It's under the rule of the last of the judges, Samuel, under God. Chapter 8, Israel declares that the people want a king. But the problem is they already have God as their king and godly Samuel to administer God's rule as judge. Yet they looked round them, At the other nations, the nations that were far from God, and they saw the kinds of men that those other nations had ruling over them, and they should have been repulsed, but they were not. They were not satisfied with the provisions that God had given them. They were not satisfied with old Samuel. They wanted what the other nations had. They wanted kings like Theirs, And they bring that petition to Samuel, who is the mediator between God and his people at that time. And Samuel feels personally affronted, but he tells God and God tells him better. God says in chapter 8, verse 7, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you. It is not you, Samuel, they have rejected. but They have rejected me as their king. Israel's request for a king is not merely a request for an administrative change. It is symptomatic of the fact that they have rejected God as their king. They have lost faith in the king they already have. And Samuel Explains the consequences of wanting a king like the other nations to the people. The dreadful consequences of that. But the people of Israel are intransigent. They want one and they'll have one. And surprisingly, we'd expect God to just say no. But because God has a higher purpose here, He will give them what they want. A king like the other nations but in doing so he will also give them up to the consequences of that poor choice and show them that they need him rather than what they think they need and it is in that context that we have the calling anointing and commissioning of saul saul is brought first of all, to Samuel. And this is what chapter 9 is really all about. And keep an eye, as we look at chapter 9, on Saul's qualifications, such as we find them here. Both what's mentioned about Saul, in what ways he's actually commended, and what's not mentioned, because both are significant. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, finally. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Here are Saul's qualifications. His father Kish was a man of standing. Probably a wealthy man, we think. So he had some pedigree in his background. It says also uh, in the NIV that I've got in front of me that he was impressive. Commonly that's translated handsome. We imagine Saul to be a, a, a looker. Probably the most handsome man in all Israel. And that was part of his CV here. And also we read that he had a head taller than any of the others. He, if he stood in this assembly tonight, I'm sure he would exceed my height by a good degree, and I'm not the tallest person in this room. I know that, but he would have been an extremely tall man. Now, remember that Israel asked for a king like the kings of the other nations. Of course, they had the Philistines neighboring them to the east, and uh, we later on encounter the conflict between David and the giant Goliath. They wanted someone who was impressive in that way. And Saul, at least to some extent, fits the bill. And that's what's mentioned. But I I said to remember and to think about what's not mentioned. What's not mentioned is Saul's moral character. What's not mentioned here is Saul's state before the Lord. What's not mentioned is whether he's a holy man, a godly man, a a man whose heart is turned towards the Lord. And when we read about such people in the Scripture, it's usually those characteristics about them that are listed first and foremost. I think of the beginning of Luke's Gospel with uh, uh, Zechariah and others, but Saul's spiritual state is passed over. And so we must look for clues of it as we go along. And then we have this bizarre episode, which uh, came up in our reading in chapter 10, which which talked about donkeys being found. And so we go into that and we find out why that's that's brought up here. Chapter 9, verse 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul... Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. Now, here's what leads to Saul, uh, S- Saul's meeting with Samuel. It's not what we might expect. Again, it's not a grand or obvious summons from heaven to Saul that he will be king of Israel. It's not even a previous acquaintance with Samuel where Samuel discerns Saul's suitability for this office as king of Israel. But there's been a a little bit of a problem with the livestock. Uh, Some donkeys have gone astray. We don't quite know how they've gone missing. Maybe they just wandered off. Maybe there has been some uh, unscrupulous person stealing donkeys we don't even know how many there are but these are the bizarre circumstances that lead anyway uh, to what follows and Saul and one of the servants are sent out by Kish the father of Saul to find the donkeys and so they go and then we have an account in the chapter of the search Uh, they search far and wide, all over the place, and they still haven't found the donkeys, and eventually they find themselves near the city of Ramah, where Samuel the prophet happens to live. And Saul despairs of finding the donkeys, and he begins to worry about his father, begins to worry that his father's going to forget about the donkeys altogether and start thinking about where his son's gone missing, and so Saul, discouraged, tells the servant that they should go back to his father. But the servant says this, look, in this town, that's the town of Ramah, there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. So the servant has identified correctly that there is a man of God in Ramah. He hasn't named him. We know that it's uh, Samuel. And what the servant and Saul want from this man of God is help finding the donkeys, which actually isn't a particularly noble motive for going to a man of God. It's not a fittingly spiritual reason to go to a man of God. But nevertheless, They resolve to go on that. And after agreeing to take a little money in exchange for information about the donkeys, uh, Saul agrees to take some silver. They come by some women outside the city. They find that Samuel is going to go about his religious duties at the local high place, and they resolve to meet him there. I'll just pause on this point. Saul is good-looking. He's from a good family. He's very tall. And those are the things that we know recommend him so far. He also seems quite a genial fellow. But there seems already to be something lacking in his piety. His motivation in seeing Samuel is similar to someone who might go to a fortune teller. But that's not what a prophet of God is for. prophet of God is... Sent of God to proclaim judgment, to proclaim salvation, and to proclaim the way of life in God and in fellowship with Him. He's not there to look after uh, matters like this. But I think there's a little lesson for us here. Uh, People will come to men of God. And I'm not just talking about ministers here, but also lay people. And if you're a Christian, you're a man of God or a woman of God, and people will come to you for all manner of different reasons and with all different kinds of motives, and they'll come to you for help, often with things that you can't help them with. Some people uh, come into church because they think we can help them become rich. Well, we have to disappoint that. Or, we think that, or they think that in coming in, we might make them healthy and healthy. Uh, In some ways we might be able to, but in other ways not. And in in other ways they might come just because they want to be happy. And of course we offer them contentment, which is so much greater than that. But whatever the motivation that anybody has in coming to us as the people of God, it's our job to redirect them to Jesus Christ in the gospel. Uh, Just as it was Samuel's job to redirect, as we're about to see Saul, in uh, the matter, away from the donkeys, towards something of substance. And so, eventually, we have the meeting convened in Ramah. Saul's motivation is unspiritual. He and the servant bump into Samuel as they come into the city, but God has been preparing Samuel all along to receive him. Verse 15 of chapter 9. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Around him, uh, anoint him, leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. God says, I will send you a man. These circumstances, and I'm not just talking about God uh, intervening at the last minute to uh, to talk to Samuel about what's about to happen, but the whole of this story, the loss of the donkeys, the search, the women outside the city, this meeting, of course, all of them have been brought about by God. God gives Samuel prior notice that the man he personally has chosen to be king over Israel in accordance with their request, that man is Saul. And in verse 17, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, and there's no way he could have missed him, is there? The Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Now, although chosen by God, There's no suggestion that Saul meets God's moral approval. God is sovereign over everything. That means that God is in charge of everything. If we believe in the biblical God, we have to reckon with the full extent of his power. God decides everything that happens. Let's think about prominence for a minute because Saul is going to become a man Of prominence from obscurity people find themselves in prominence in many and various ways in our world the example of government there are elections of course but there are very many mysterious processes that lead up to those and uh, you think even even in other places where there are violent uprisings and we could think in Less serious terms, perhaps, of the strange process that brings celebrities to prominence in the gossip magazines or on the internet or certain popular music artists to prominence uh, and certain styles of music in fashion and other styles go out of fashion. All of that. God has ordained that whole process. He is in control of it. He decides who is prominent, including even the most wicked or unworthy people. And he has a purpose in all of that. And his purpose is to teach us spiritual lessons. Uh, So when we're looking at something like this, we have to ask ourselves, what's the spiritual lesson that God might be teaching us in situations like that? And so Saul meets Samuel on the road, and he asks Samuel to tell him where he can find the seer, which was this old-fashioned word, and I love the historical detail here. It's the old-fashioned word for a prophet, even before they were called prophets. And Samuel identifies himself as the seer. And Samuel gives Saul instructions to go up to the high place, the, the hill, the place of worship in Ramah. And Samuel says that he will meet Saul there, and he will eat with him. And he also says that he will tell Saul everything that's on Saul's heart. Samuel is going to disclose what their meeting is really all about. And it's not donkeys. But Saul's mind is still on the donkeys. So Samuel has to uh, relieve him of that. And he says uh, in chapter 9, verse 20, As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And in order to redirect his attention to what's really going on here, Samuel says, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Notice. Notice in that verse who it is that desires Saul to be king. doesn't say God there, does it? It says Israel all the desire of Israel turned. Israel wants Saul, according to Samuel. But of course we know that Saul is a man of obscurity. So what Samuel must be saying is, Israel wants someone like you, Saul. And when Israel is presented with you, because you fit the categories that they're looking for in a leader right now, They will readily accept you It's because of his handsome good looks and awesome stature and family standing that they'll want a man like him. And uh, in the sense that he's presented to them. And they'll get exactly what they want. He ticks all their worldly boxes and God will give them the leader that they want. We get the leaders that we want. Um, I know that some people are uh, habitual readers of celebrity scandal and uh, gossip and so on. And uh, they like to uh, make a show of being scandalized by these things. But often, actually, God is just giving people who indulge in such things what they actually want. That There's something voyeuristic or or morbid fascination deep within uh, people's minds. And God satisfies people's lusts in that direction. But in doing so, he gives them over to the consequences of indulging sin like that, of indulging in pride. And... You could extend this to the even more serious realm of government. If we find ourselves under ungodly governments, it might be because that's what we really want. Our nation, as far from God as it is, has wanted for many years, in large parts, license. Sexual, moral, economic, and God has given us leaders who will... Give us that. But the consequences are still disastrous. But we get the leaders that we want, and that is what Israel is going to get here. And this means that they're going to get Saul. And so there is a conference between Samuel and Saul. They eat together. they uh, talk for the evening upon the roof the next day. Uh, they do the same early, and Samuel tells Saul to send the servant on ahead a bit. He's going to tell Saul a little more than he wants the servant to hear, and Samuel gives Saul God's message. And this is the, the the center of it really, in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying. Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? This is the symbolical action by which Saul is anointed king by Samuel. The oil points to the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What Samuel does outwardly here, the Lord God will do inwardly as he anoints Saul Inwardly by the Holy Spirit in order to set him apart as king of Israel. And not only is he anointed, but he's also given a symbolic kiss. It's an act of deference to God's king. Of course, in Psalm 2, we have uh, this command to kiss the son. And Samuel gives Saul parting instructions, and that's uh, what most of the substance of our reading earlier dealt with in preparation for the public announcement that he shall be king. I'll just make a remark on the deference of Samuel here. Now Samuel is a very pious man and a very sincere man of God. And I've no doubt at all That with all the circumstances that have led up to this, Samuel is under no illusions about the kind of man that Saul is. I'm sure that Samuel knows that Saul is unworthy. That Samuel knows that the rule of Saul will end up being a disaster. But because it's the Lord's will that Saul be king, Samuel in great humility, submits to the one whom God has appointed. And godly men, and this is one of the distinguishing marks of true Christians, are always submissive to those in authority. Of course, we think of Daniel. We think of the Apostle Paul. uh, Supremely, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to death, blameless as he was. And today, in oppressive regimes, of course, we we have the witness of the blood of many Christians who have gone submissively to death in standing for Christ. And that must be our model, only disobeying legitimate authority when God's Word commands us to do so. And even though many are very wicked Who are in power or influence but we must treat them with deference because God has put them there and that means not posting uh, rude or disrespectful things about our political rulers on uh, social media websites or uh, gossiping and speaking in an unkind way about them on uh, in our conversations and so on yes we can disagree with people's politics and we can disagree with the, the misuse of rule that many people will, will 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 do. But we must be respectful because God has put our rulers there. Even leaders in the church must be treated with the same uh, reverence and deference. So Samuel anoints Saul and then Saul then uh, heads back to his family, tells his uncle about the donkeys, misses out the big story and samuel summons the people and prepares them for saul's appointment as king and i'll read verses 17 to 19 of chapter 10. samuel summoned the people of israel to the lord at Mizpah, and he said to them this is what the lord the god of israel says i brought israel up out of egypt and i delivered you from the power of egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God. Who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said no. Set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord. By your tribes and clans. God is the savior of his people. He has been the instrument of their deliverance. He has He has set forth before them proofs and proofs of His faithfulness and His goodness and His power and might over all the kingdoms of the world. And yet Israel has said no to Him and rejected Him. No, they say, set a king over us, as if they don't have a king in God. We have to see this story In the light of the fact that God is giving this king, Saul, to Israel as a punishment for the unfaithfulness of the people. So the tribe of Benjamin is uh, chosen, the tribe from which Saul is drawn. Saul's clan selected and Saul elected, uh, having hid himself in humility and possibly embarrassment on the occasion. And this is what happens, Saul hid among the stuff, and verses 23 and 24, they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Again, notice the characteristic that's mentioned. Verse 23, he was a head taller than any of the others. What is most remarkable about this man is that he is very tall. And that's how he stands out. And when Samuel says there is no one like him among the people, he's telling Israel, this is what you want. A king like the nations. A king impressive in his physical stature and this is what God has given you. The Lord has chosen him, says Samuel, in the sense that he's given you your wish. And how do they respond? Long live the king. The people assent to Saul because he appeals to their worldly standards. And I uh, was going to go a little into chapter 11, but I won't do that tonight. Uh, There is initial success in the ministry, if you like, of Saul, but eventually he falls. Uh, The people want a, a military success, and they get one, and they get a little bit of that, but eventually it crumbles, and it's because Saul is not set on God. His heart isn't set on God. and The spirit departs from him and eventually the kingdom is handed to David, a man after God's heart. There is a great danger for us as Christians when the church starts to want leaders after the models that are offered us by the world. There is a lot of evil in this world. If you listen to the pop radio stations, you can see the kind of values and ideals that the world puts at the top of its list. Relationships, success, money, those kinds of things. Never, ever God. And we can assimilate the world's priorities and what the world values in its leaders into our churches and seek leaders whose priorities are the same. We might find ourselves wanting leaders or or even even lay members of our congregations who are like high-flying CEOs or very fashionable or really funny or who never say anything offensive. But what we need is not leaders who appeal to the world's standards What we need is in our leaders is godliness, is men whose hearts are consecrated to the Lord. And that's what we need to be as the people of God also. It's what we need ourselves. Saul here is commended because of his physical attributes. But contrast David in 1 Samuel 13, 14, described as a man after God's own heart. That's who we ought to be like and who we ought to want. That's, that's who we ought to want as our ministers and shepherds, men after God's own heart. But of course, there is none greater than our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings. People have tried to uh, draw pictures of him. I'm glad there are none in here. Uh, but... They've done so without any evidence. And when they do so, they miss the point, I think, of of the picture that we're supposed to paint of Him, which is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. Nowhere in the Gospels is the physical appearance of our blessed Lord described. Why? I propose this. That our Lord's worth is not found in His physical appearance like Saul's was, but rather in his perfect obedience to God and in his perfect selflessness. And of course, our worth is found in him by faith. When we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we remembered that, that we are in him that everything that he has is ours. Now that is not a, a model that the world ever puts forth or is ever particularly interested in. It's not the model that Israel was interested in here, but it must be what we want in our King. And if that's what we want in our King, then the Lord Jesus will provide us with what we want. Our growth is found, not as we grow in attractiveness to the world, but as we grow in our faith in Christ and in our obedience to God. And may we grow. May the Lord liberate us from seeking after the kings of this world and seek instead to be renewed in the likeness of the King of kings. Amen. And we're going to sing now.